Continuing in John chapter 16, back a bit. and we're down there on <coughs> verse 7, John 16, and it is verse 7. <coughs> now remembering the last night in the life of the Lord Jesus, remembering how he's giving them those last words of instruction, encouragement, and hope. He has explained to them, remember, we've done this in detail, the kind of world that they're going to be left in. And it is persecution, hatred and hostility, and it will really cost something to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's then explained to them, and we've done this as well, (coughs) their role in the world in which they are being left. And it was what? To produce and to bring forth fruit. Now last week and this week we are looking at this amazing fact that he's explaining to them the benefits that will come to them as a result of his going away. must have come as an absolute shock to hear that there could be any benefits by his going away because it didn't sort of make sense. They seemed to feel utterly bereft and puzzled and desperate. And we saw the, the Lord saying, but you're asking the wrong questions, not how shall we cope, what shall we do, but you're not asking me where I am going because when you know where I'm going, you'll see the blessings that will come from the fact that I am no longer just here as a humble man amongst you, limited by the restrictions of manhood, I'll be up there on the throne in glory, mighty to save, competent to rule until everything is put under his feet. Surely it's better that he goes away and accomplishes that rather than stays with them, even as their shepherd, their guard, their guide and their friend. He's going to the place of supreme and absolute power, glory and authority. We saw all that next week, last week. Now let's continue on. Verse 7. Nevertheless, he says, I'm telling you the truth. It's actually expedient. In other words, it's better for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, that is, of course, and we spoke about that title, beautiful title, will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Now notice, when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will convict the world of sin. That's right up the front. And we saw last week very clearly, very powerfully from the scriptures and from the history of how God has worked that right in the forefront of a work of God in the world will always be that conviction of sin. He says, verse 9, of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness... Because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. That puzzled over that verse. We'll come to that in a moment. But he gives the reason why there will be conviction of sin. is because they don't believe on him. That's very clear and very makes easy sense. But of righteousness, because I go to my Father, takes a little bit more thinking about. Of judgment, because a prince of this world, the ruler of this world, is judged. And that's Satan himself. We've had that about had about that this morning already. I have many things to say to you yet, but you cannot bear them now. <clears throat> Howbeit when he, 
Now notice this, the spirit of truth is come. He's just not only going to convict sin, righteousness, judgment. When he's come for the people of God, he will guide you into all truth. He shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. He won't originate what's to be said. He will receive and he will convey. Whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he'll show you things to come. And look at this, he shall glorify me. He shall glorify me. He doesn't glorify himself. This is wonderful. The unselfish service of that person of the Godhead, one of the triune God. He comes to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. To make him real. To make his work known. The saviour of sinners. He shall receive of mine. He will take what's mine. He will show it to you. And here's the extent of what the Lord has. To give as it were to the Holy Spirit. Who will take it and show it to us. Reveal it to us. All things that the Father has are mine. The whole treasure house. The whole storehouse of heaven. Every blessing of God he says. It's mine. Therefore, said I, that he shall take of mine. You see, he's achieved all those blessings through his work, through his death, burial, <coughs> and resurrection. And <coughs> he shall show it unto you. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word together. Now, what have we got here? <coughs> what we've got here... <coughs> excuse me... <coughs> What we've got here in this section of the scripture is actually one of the most concise, yet the most complete explanations of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now I want to repeat that. One of the most concise, but one of the most complete explanation of who the Holy Spirit is and what will be the work that he will do when he actually comes. Now when you want to know a doctrine, I keep saying this and I'll teach it again. Go to where the Lord Jesus teaches the doctrine first and get your foundation clear. Wherever else you may go in Scripture, where the apostles write or where the prophets predict it or where the pages of the Old Testament illustrate it, go first to the foundations of what the Lord says because all of what the apostles say are merely explaining what he has already said. And so often when we go to look at Scripture... And we say we want to do a session on or series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Where do we start? Where do we start? Just think that through for a minute. I asked somebody in the surgery, we were talking about the scriptures, and I said, if you're going to do a, a study on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, where would you start? I'll tell you the answer in a minute. But when I was in my 20s, I went to a series of conferences on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And they started where this man said you'd start, Acts chapter 2. And I remember as a young man sitting there, no, no, it's wrong. <laughs> it's not right. Remember as a young man sitting there thinking, this is a bit odd. It's like sort of, well, we're going to survey a building design and we're going to start, shall we say, on the first floor. No, go to the foundations. Now, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ are the foundations of all the rest of the building. And the place to go is in the upper room ministry where the Lord Jesus actually taught very, very clearly the person and the work of the, Lord Je of the Holy Spirit. Because when you understand who the Holy Spirit is, 
And when you understand what his work is, then you will understand why it's better that the Lord Jesus never stayed here to continue the work with the limitations of it now or then. But you will understand why it is much better that he's ascended up on high and the Holy Spirit has come down to continue the work. What does it do? He takes the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done in his death, burial, resurrection and ascension, what he has done as the sinner's saviour, what he has done as a, in atonement for sin, in a sacrifice for sin, and he makes it effective in the world. If he had not come down here, the work of the Lord Jesus would stand but not be effective in anybody's heart. I might go further than that and say, it's like saying, if the Holy Spirit had not come down, not one sinner would have been saved. The work was there, the basis had been laid, salvation available, but not brought to the reality of the world lost in sin or the sinner as an individual. It's the Holy Spirit that takes of the things that the Lord Jesus Christ has done and makes it applicable and effective in the heart of the individual. All right? Keep the plan in your mind. God himself, God the Father, laid the plan of redemption. The God of the garden made the promise of a redeemer. He had already laid the, the, the plan in an eternity past. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he came to do the work so the plan and purpose of God and the, the redemption which he had desired could become available. Then the Holy Spirit came and he made it available. He gave effect to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, keep that clear. Now, we've already learnt in chapter 14, verse 16 there, that the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven. He says, I'll pray my Father. He says, I'm going to the Father. We did that last week. He's returning to the Father, and I will ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit. I will send him in my name. He comes from the same place as I came from. That's where he came from, the Father, remember? He knew that he came from God, and he was going back to God. Now he says, when I go back there to my Father, I will see sending the Holy Spirit. He will come in my name, and he will come from the same place, number one. Number two, he says, I'm going to send you another comforter. Remember that word another was the word that was used in the original to convey the idea of another one of the same kind. And not, not just a comforter, but another one of the same kind as I am. So I'm sending someone, a person of the Godhead from the same place. <clears throat> he is the same kind and he will abide with you forever. In other words, you've got the hint there of the fact that he will be, and he is, eternal in his existence forever from the same place of the same kind with the same eternal existence and more than that in chapter 14 when he comes he will bring to you as my people as one of my children the full realization of the presence of God in your soul and in your life through the Holy Spirit coming to abide with you forever, to be with you, never to leave you, I, through the Holy Spirit, will also come and dwell within you. This is chapter 14. 
and my Father himself will also come in and make his abode with you. And there you are, as a sinner saved by grace, moving through life, you know, living day by day. You go to work, you go to school, you're at the home, and people look at you and say, yes, you're, a, you're just a, an ordinary person, as it were, doing the ordinary things. Yet you, you, by the grace of God, you're moving every day fully aware, fully conscious of the indwelling God, of the indwelling Father, of the indwelling Lord Jesus Christ, of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. So sort of we, we end up living in two relationships with people on the one side and God from heaven. And we live in two worlds, one foot on the earth and the other ready for glory. You're living completely differently, you're thinking differently, you're, you're enjoying differently, you're walking with the Lord in the light of his word. You're thrilled by the sense of heaven and home and you read the word of God and it means so much to you. Why? Because of what the Holy Spirit has done and made real to you every day the presence of the Lord. And when somebody reads the scriptures where the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you say, Amen, I know that's true. I know it's true. And you've got a shepherd, you've got a guard, you've got a guide, you've got that which is dwelling within you. You see, the Holy Spirit has become that link. He is God. Therefore, he can join me to God. He can bring me into communion with God. Now, this is incredible what we've already read, read about, isn't it? He comes from the same place, the same kind, the same eternal existence because he's one of the Trinity. He is equal with God. He is God. He is God absolute. And what's more, he brings to the Christian the full realization of fellowship, communion, and the presence of God. Then we saw his first bit of work was he comes into the world and he convicts of sin. We did that in detail. Now, if you're a Christian, you'll have no trouble with anything I said last week. Nothing. You won't. You know, you'll, you, you think about it and you'll say, you read the scriptures like the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And you go, yeah, that's true. No, no, I don't look out there at that evil woman on the street corner and I don't look at that, that drug man and I don't look at the murderer. I just look in here and I go, it's there all right. It's worse than I thought. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. I've come to know a holy God and I know my sinful nature and all its unholiness is so bad, it's exceedingly sinful. And I, in my old nature, am capable of anything. And by the way, when you get older, as you're getting older, would you please remember that? Some of us are getting older, me included. Just remember what you're really capable of, left but, but, but for the grace of God. It'll keep you humble. Don't think you've won every fight and you know all the answers. You don't. If you walk with the Lord, you'll feel more humble every day. If you read the scriptures and apply them to yourself, you'll feel more guilty every day. And if you confess your sin and find he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin, you'll be more rejoicing every day and thanking God that he ever saved a sinner like you. And when they read the scriptures and you read about that publican and he says, God be merciful to me, the sinner, you say, yeah, I sure know about that. I sure know about that. That's me. That's me. And if you've never been through that, and you're not constantly going through it, it's still in your heart, the gratitude to God for saving a sinner like me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you haven't got that feeling, and you don't have that constant feeling, look, please examine yourself, whether you be in the faith. Because it may be that the Holy Spirit has never actually done a real work in you. See, that's the point. So you just think very soberly about that. Now the next one is, he convicts the world of sin... <clears throat> 
and it says, of righteousness. <clears throat> now I want to look at these in two ways. The Holy Spirit moving generally in the world, right? And then the Holy Spirit moving in particular in the life of an individual to bring them to Christ for salvation. Now, just think about it. The Holy Spirit is moving in the world and he's convicting the world of righteousness. You say, well, I don't get that. <clears throat> just think it like this. Why is there so much argument in the world today about right and wrong? You say that's right? You're judging me. How dare you determine what is right? The problem is, and the reason is it, why there's so much argument and this is right, no, that's right, no, that's right, no, that's something else right. The actual truth is, the world knows there is such a thing as right. It's actually engraved within the soul of every person that's born. There is a sense of right. Okay? Number one. Number two, if there's a sense of right, you've automatically got to have a sense of wrong. They know that is true, and they hate the notion of something being right. They hate it so much, the ungodly society hates the notion so much, that they say, we will take control of right. Okay? In other words, I will determine what is right for me. The whole notion of a higher authority determining absolutes of right and wrong is utterly obnoxious to the world in which we live today. How true that is. You're telling me what to do? You're judging me? You're actually making me feel guilty. Guilt, the most unhelpful and destructive emotion, according to the psychologists. You go there, you know, very often, because you're guilty of sin, and it's getting you down, or it's depressing you, or whatever it might be doing. But what happens? They try to explain it all away and explain to you to feel guilty is, a, is really and truly quite a negative emotion. It's not. It's one of God's emotions. So the notion of a higher authority is absolutely obnoxious to them, telling them what is right. Right. Meanwhile, okay, meanwhile, there's two things to look at. <clears throat> Outside them, just go and get this voice, this thing right, will you please? It is up this morning. Sorry, people that can't hear, people can hear, people. It's too loud for some, too soft for others. You're right now? You got it right? Good, thank you. So let's have a look at two ways. First of all, there's creation. Have you ever thought about it? Creation just silently stands there, and it's a voice. It is screaming to mankind that there is a higher authority that there is someone there, some power, something, which is omnipotent, number one. Omnipresent, number two. An absolute one, far above a mere creature. One of whose the Bible says has eternal power and Godhead, who is infinite. I mean, I can remember discussing with a group of, well, actually they were um, Hindus and they had different gods and I... I said, see that tree out there? Isn't that a beautiful tree? Look at that. It's marvellous. You know something? No one's ever made a tree. <laughs> it's just a witness to the fact that only God can make a tree in all its beauty. So you've got the external evidence which tells you that there is a source above the existence of power and authority who decrees and knows what is right. On the mean, in the meantime, inside every man there's a thing that's called a conscience, you see. There is an internal witness that keeps saying right, 
wrong, good, bad, guilty, apology, whatever. There's something in there that goes tick, tick, tick. Because there is a true light which lightens every man that comes into the world. The voice within, the internal evidence that there is something to be answered for. You can take your conscience and you can harden it. You can take your conscience and you can sear it, the Bible says. You're not like putting a hot iron over the top of it to seal it so that it's now insensitive. It's like a third-degree burn, you know. You get a third-degree burn on your hand and you can, you can cut it. You can do what you like to it. All the nerves are gone. It's been, they've been seared. There's no more feeling. So you can get it as seared as you like. You can try and silence it, but it's still there. You see, and that is why people actually get so angry when you quote to them the standard of God or if you yourself, in any shape or form, sort of bring in a, a voice that's, that's maybe condemning or making them feel uncomfortable, you know, the conscience inside them goes, and then they go, whoa, it's your fault, you're doing this. It's not me that should be listening to the voice within, it's you that should be shutting up. You get the idea? Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit continues his work, convicting of righteousness from the external and the internal. And then you come to the individual sinner. You come to the soul that God is speaking to. And first of all, he convicts him of his sin. And the moment you've been truly convicted of your sin, you actually realize there's nothing right about you. That's the idea, firstly. Nothing right about you. Actually, you've got no worth in yourself. You've got no acceptance before God. All you have is the works of good that you might do. The problem is you feel you've got to do more and more, even those who believe salvation is by works, they have to do more and more because they just know that they can never get enough and they are totally inadequate. And you read the Bible and the Bible says all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Imagine that. And you realize you desperately need something you haven't got. You're not right with God, you have no acceptance before God. Indeed, you are there like the prodigal son. When he came back from the pig pen, he must have stunk. He came back in all his rags and he gets to the father's house and he says, look, I'm no more worthy to be called your son. And the father who's been watching and waiting for him and I don't doubt praying desperately about him. The first thing he does is he embraces him and he kisses him. And that's the kiss of forgiveness. And then he looks at him. You're not fit to be in the father's house. The prodigal says, no, I'm not worthy to be called a son. Put me out into the stables where I can muckrake for the horses. Look at me. Ah, he says, you bring out the best robe and you put it on him. Eh? A robe of righteousness. Make him so that he's fit to come into the Father's house and stand as a son and feel like a son. Be accepted as a son in the value of the garment which I have provided for him. He said, take those filthy clothes off him and make him fit. You see, that is how it is. I realize that I haven't got what is necessary to make me acceptable to God. You see, when the Holy Spirit works on me, he doesn't come to me and say, you know, you're a fine fellow. What you need is a whole new shot of self-esteem. You need to get some self-worth. You need to realize how God loves you because you're so valuable. You're so precious. 
You sow this and you sow that. It's not an ego boost. No, no, no. He destroys first and he rebuilds again and he makes us new. He doesn't renovate. Oh, no. He regenerates. He does not renovate. You get that? Doesn't work with what he's got. He starts all over again. And he can't start with what we were once because we are fallen creatures. Do you understand? Humpty Dumpty. He sat on a wall. And he had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again. And so it is. God could never make anything good out of sinners such as we. So he made us brand new. We were never right with God. Now he says this amazing statement. He says, I've come here now to... The Holy Spirit will come to convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father. And I must admit, I prayed over that and I struggled over that. What, what are, the, are the connections between the two? Why is that the reason that that conviction of righteousness will come? And it's like this. Just picture yourself and you are, as it were, standing there and he's talking to you. And he says to you, says, and he's a man. He's a man like you and I, but of course he is fully God, but he has veiled that. He has put, that, put the rights of that, the rights of it and the use of it to the one side in order that he might become like one of us, like his brethren, right? And he is there as a man and he has lived as a man and he says, I'm going to the Father. In other words, he says the amazing thing, this man talking with them is able to go directly back into the presence of God and be accepted He will need no robe provided by the Father to make him fit to be in the Father's house. He will go in all the beauty and perfection of his own righteousness. A life totally sinless. A heart totally pure. He met the devil himself for 40 days in the wilderness And he came back, the Lamb of God, the one fit to bear away the sin of the world. He had persevered with them in all their temptations. He had lived every vicissitude of life. There wasn't one stain of sin on his garment, nor was there a stain or a mark of sin in his nature. And he says, I who am talking with you am going directly into the very presence of God. What? A man from earth, right up, to heaven? Could that be? Even the angels must have been startled. They must have been goggle-eyed. Have you ever thought of the Lord Jesus ascending up on high and entering into heaven itself? The angels watched a man rise up and the door of heaven opened and they thought, fallen man, man hasn't been in heaven ever. He only ever got to Eden, he never got to heaven. I mean, even we, the angels, only the various, the top level of the hierarchy of, of us, the seraphim, the holy seraphim, can go into the presence of God. <clears throat> even then they must veil their faces and cover their feet and say, holy, holy, holy. And we must make the incense, the smoke arise, and the very pillars of the temple will shake. But here's a man. He's coming from earth. He's going directly up. The door of heaven opened and he's going to go right into the very presence of God and receive the kingdom and he's going to sit on the throne. You, you could have just, just sensed the tensity, the tension as it were. They think, what's going to happen now? He's going to be sent back. He can't possibly do. But he goes in and he sits down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What is he saying to them? 
He's saying to them, here I am in all my perfect righteousness, the only man ever justified by works, by the way. <laughs> you think about that. The only one was the Lord Jesus. He was accepted because of who he was and what he was. But you see, I look at now at him and I realize he has got, right, the righteousness which I don't have. He has that righteousness which I need to be accepted by God and fit to go to heaven and be in heaven. In other words, he's got everything that I need and he has everything that I have not. And convicted of sin and of my own unrightness, all right, I turn, the sinner convicted who's been worked upon by the Holy Spirit, turns to the Lord Jesus Christ Firstly, for forgiveness for that sin, because I, they, you, I have believed not on him. And then secondly, I want the righteousness which he has, which I desperately need. That's why the scripture said, he was raised again for our justification. See, when, when he was raised from the dead, understand God was saying, this man's perfectly righteous. It says in the Bible, it wasn't possible that he could be holden by death. Why not? Because the wages of sin is death. Right. No sin, no death. So he entered into death, and it wasn't possible that death could hang on to him because they had no claim on him. Death had no claim on Christ because there was no sin in him to keep him there. So he rises from the dead. The resurrection is a proof of his righteousness, and God says, I raised him from the dead for your justification so that if you will come to him as a convicted sinner... You will see the answer to your need and I will declare you to be righteousness. And that's what we have, fellow Christian, in whom we have that forgiveness of our sins and we've got a robe of righteousness, a robe of imputed It's not ours. When we get to heaven, we're going to be clothed in all the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? An ugly man like me, beautiful. A sinner like you, dead ugly, Beautiful clothed with the value and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, a robe of righteousness. Oh, you won't be thinking about the pig pen anymore. Never again. It's all in the past. You've been made anew. You've been made a child of God. You've been indwelt by the Spirit of God. You've been convicted of your sin. You've been convicted of that righteousness. And then finally, you've been convicted of judgment. All right, this is how God works when he works in the world and when he works in the soul. Let's look at that. I mean, why is it that today people are desperately trying to do away with the whole notion of judgment? And they are. The, people, the reason people today are so angry about these different things is because they actually know they're true. You know, you hit a real nerve when you point it out, they flare up. Well, don't bother to flare up if it's not true. I mean, if a thing's not true, it doesn't matter. Why does it matter so much to you? Why does it matter that, you know, you're being made to feel unworthy, that you're being made to feel guilty? Well, because you are, and it's true. Why is it you don't like judgment? It's because it's true. Now, you think of it like this. What are we doing in today's world? We're trying to do away with a whole notion of accountability, correct? The whole notion of being held responsible for anything we do. The whole notion of consequences. We want a society where we can express ourselves and be our ugly, sinful, passionate, vile self, and no one will condemn me, no one will hold me responsible, there will be no consequences to my behaviour. As a matter of fact, I don't believe in judgment of any kind or sort. And so, 
we think, well, we better decriminalise society in the sense of take the laws away, you see, so they don't break so many laws and there won't be so much penalty around the place. Mind you, meanwhile, we've got this outburst of crime like we've never seen for, or should we say, at least for many, many decades. And we take our children and we put them in the school. Always go for the younger generation, by the way, when you want to change society. You know, when you've got a, a program <coughs> of morality that you want to bring in, do a Hitler and have you hit the youth. <coughs> Train the younger generation. <coughs> do the communist thing and have the children taught one thing so they'll betray their parents and break away from their teaching. And what have we got today? You go to school, but you don't give them punishment anymore. Oh, dear, dear me, no. You must reward good. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You must increase their self-worth and their self-esteem and their value as a person. But don't hold them responsible. I mean, no judgment. Come on, no judgment. No punishment. No, 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 no. No. We mustn't, we mustn't have that sort of thing. You get the notion? And when you mark their exams, as it were, or write on their paper, don't write in red. That's terribly condemnatory. And when you write a school report, only say the good things about them and don't tell them they got it wrong. I mean, you're really damaging the flourishing of the sinful nature and the self-esteem and the aggrandizement of who I am instead of making them realise they have a lot to learn. And like all of us, we have a lot to learn. And we are sinners by nature and by practice. I could go on and on. The politicians, they want to live their lives with no accountability, blatant, blatant lies, total deception. Even when they've got something true to tell you, they can't tell it to you straight anymore. They'll represent it as being something else. They, they're just bent. They can't lie straight in bed. That's how bad it is. You can't have a conversation with these men where they can say yay and nay. They've forgotten the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that's evil. But oh, no, 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 no. They'll never answer a question straight. Because this is what it's all about. Desperately resisting that voice which says, accountability. That's what it says. Judgment, the day of judgment coming. Now, what does the Bible say? The Bible says this. Appointed unto men once to die. After death, judgment. All right? Judgment. Oh, the world says, no, no, no. There's nothing after death. Ah, don't you hear it all the time? You die like a dog or whatever it is. There's nothing after death. I know I'm not afraid of death. Now, they mostly aren't until they come to die, but oh, that's the kind of language. As a matter of fact, this is what they've done. They've actually said, we will take control of our dying just to give you the thumbs up and show you we're not afraid of death. To us, it's just going out. It's just the easy way out. It's of no actual consequences. So we will bring in now control of death, euthanasia. Or we'll say it's only for the terminal ill so that the final passage is not difficult. Yeah, they just legislated it for teenagers. I might have you had a not to... Um, Terminally ill. See, it's, it's this attempt to get a control of the very thing that actually brings fear and tells of coming judgment because death is a doorway through which you pass and you face God. End of story. You face God and you answer for your life. You answer for your life. And either you go there with a saviour or you go there without him. Either you go there as a sinner that's been forgiven or you go there with your sinners that is condemning you already. Right? They're flagrantly saying, after death there's no judgment. And you see, he says, I, he says it's true. The Lord says, judgment, because the prince of this world, that's Satan, we've had it this morning. Sentence was passed on Satan in the garden. Remember, he says, you're going to be bruised, your head's going to be crushed. 
His power was broken in the resurrection. And his doom is fixed in the coming day. Read Revelation. It's the lake which burns with fire. It is tormented forever and ever. It is there with the beast and the false prophet that Satan's final doom has been spelled out. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit moves in the world and through the gospel and the presence of the people of God in the world, the voice of God is heard. <coughs> the Holy Spirit speaks. The word of God is heard. The work of the Holy Spirit is done. He speaks firstly through the people in whom he, has, in whom he is indwelling, through the people of God. We firstly are part of that important voice of God in the dark, sinful world in which we live. We are the voice of God, not the entire voice. Creation screaming, remember? Conscience is clanging, but we should be enforcing and speaking out God in every aspect of our lives. Now, wait a minute. That starts in how you live. That starts in how you live. Your life, my life, every day should be a voice of God to whoever you meet. They should see that difference. They should notice that light. They should sense the, the tang of the salt. Start with your life, then go to your lips. All right? Don't just talk it. Make sure you walk it. Far too much damage has been done by the professing Christian church in the last three or four decades by men who have talked grand, brilliant orators, and their lives have been fouled in secret. And you're left aghast, quite frankly. You can't un exactly unchristianize anybody, but you can look at them and say, I don't know where you came from, and I don't know what power you were using, but with a life like that, it certainly wasn't holiness, and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. All right. So let's start there. We're the voice of God, but have it in our lives and then take it on our lips. You get the story? Let me tell you again. I can't help telling some of these things that were stuck in my head for many years. Again, when I was only in my early 20s and in Scotland, there was this most unusual preacher, huge man with a beaming face, and he could preach and he used to tell it like it is. He worked in the Glasgow, in the shipyards, and I always remember him preaching on, when I was there, in Glasgow itself, they, he preached on the, the man at the beautiful gate of the temple, remember? Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Right? And he says, and the man, when he got saved, what did he do? He says, he went walking. And he went leaping. And he went praising God. Did you notice the order? He walked first, and he talked second. Hey, he says... You want to get salvation in your ankle bones before you get it in your jaw bones. Unfortunately, with the most of us, he says, it's tail a boot. Live it. Then you can talk it. And you'll find that your life is one of the greatest witnesses as the Holy Spirit uses us and he uses a message of the gospel which we live and preach and the voice of creation and the voice of conscience. And so he comes to the individual and he says, he convicts him of sin, of righteousness, and he convicts him of judgment to come. And you don't have any bother with that. As a Christian, you have no trouble with the thought of judgment to come. Because when you were convicted of your sin, you know jolly well that you deserve to be judged. End of story. You, if you got your deserts on that day, you'd have got damnation. That's what you'd have got. 
So you know it's true. You, you read those verses and it says, The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You say, Amen, that's true, Lord. Absolutely true. All ungodliness and unrighteousness. The wrath of God abides on the children of disobedience. And you're condemned already because you've not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And more than that, we touched this this morning. We touched this. You, you've actually been to the cross, haven't you? You've all been to the cross, haven't you? You've all had a cross experience, haven't you? I don't know anybody that God's truly saved that hasn't been to the cross. It's in the cross that their salvation was worked out. And you stood there, and just stand there for a moment, and just see them, you hear the dull blow, or the hammer swung low, as they are nailing my Lord to the tree, and the cross they uprise, upraise. Think of that, the cruelty of it. Think of the scoffing. Think of the humiliation. And join those women that were there, you know, the, the weeping women that followed. You can weep with them. You can say, oh, what a sacrifice, what an example. You can say, oh, what love. But what, yes, yes, what love. What love that he would do that for me. But wait and stay a little bit longer. Because as the time goes on, darkness comes down and covers the land. You see what's happening. God is moving in now. And he is judging the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming under judgment in that darkness. See, the, God is light and the picture is there that he's removed himself now. And the Lord Jesus is a bearer of sin, who's going to bear our sins in his own body on the tree, who's going to be made sin, now comes in under the judgment of God. This is the soul of his suffering at that midday hour when the sun should shine, but darkness covers the land. And his soul cries out in anguish under the judgment of God who says, I have nothing more to do with you at this point because you are there as the bearer of the sinner's sin, the sin of the world. And the cry goes up, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, feel the passion if you can in any sense at all and we can only touch it very lightly the passion of his soul why have you forsaken me that's judgment it's darkness it's God forsaken it's God removing everything of life and fellowship and blessing and goodness and love and the sense of his presence totally removed in those three dark hours of judgment and I say to you if God would do that to his son when he became the sin bearer for us, what will he not do to the sinner in a day to come who has no saviour? See, it's unanswerable. Yet once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, the universe has shaken. And it did. It went up single, echoless. There's no answer back. Echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from his holy lips. Amidst a lost creation that none, no, none need ever know that awful desolation. Thank God. He bore my sins in his own body on the tree. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Convicts of sin, righteousness, judgment. And I'll just, just finish at this point with that illustration of it. To perfection in the scriptures. Acts chapter 2. Alright, Acts chapter 2. 
Now, when you think of Acts chapter 2, can I just ask you, just think this through, right, as we cover it. What, what's your first thought when you think Acts chapter 2 and the descent of the Holy Spirit? What comes to your mind? Don't say it, just think it. Over and over, the first thing people come back with, oh yeah, they all spoke in tongues. Now, now hold it. <laughs> that, it. Let's go through this carefully. It says in verse 11 of actual, of our Acts chapter 2, says there quite plainly that they heard them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And that's remarkable. The point is they were hearing their own language and they had the gift of tongues in order to convey to these people the wonderful works of God. And what was happening here as the Holy Spirit was coming down in a public way as in tongues of flame fire Upon the, to, upon the apostles, what was coming about was the fact that to all the world would now be proclaimed the wonderful works of God. <coughs> and Peter, he stands up there, and in verse 22 it says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. I've given you my opening sermon, he says, from verse 14 to verse 22. I have told you that we have come into the last days. I've come and I've told you in verse 21 that these are the days when whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, miracles, wonders, signs which God did by him. And if we, uh, in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. He confronts them, bang, with their sin. Do you get that? The anointed preacher on the day of Pentecost comes out with the words and confronts them with their sin. When the Holy Spirit is working through an evangelist, there will always be the message about sin right up the front, as it was on the day of Pentecost. Verse 24 whom God has raised up because it was not possible that he should be holden by it. He is saying he was absolutely righteous, confronts them with the sin, tells them about one who was righteous, who has actually gone back to the Father, exactly as the Lord Jesus said he would. Sin, you get it? Righteousness, verse 34, He's ascended up on high. He's sitting at the right hand of God until I make thy foes thy footstool. The Lord has said to the, has said to the Lord, his Lord has said unto the Lord, God the Father says to God the Son, if you like, you sit here until I make thy foes thy footstool. In other words, until finally judgment is complete and the day of judgment comes. So that... When the Holy Spirit came to earth in that public way, the first thing that happened was that the message was preached that confronted the audience of sin. You've taken my wicked hands, crucified and slain. Righteousness, he's ascended to the Father and death couldn't hold him because he was righteous. And of judgment, until his enemies are put down under his feet. And then the Holy Spirit closes in, as it were, on the message. 
See, he's been working from the very beginning through the servant who's the preaching by a miraculous means so that all can hear and understand. And the outcome is, it says in verse 37, when they heard this, they were pricked or cut in their heart. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? What is it? The Holy Spirit moves in the conviction of sin. You see that? No, they didn't all do cartwheels, bark like dogs, laugh like hyenas. No! They said, what are we going to do? The cutting edge of the Holy Spirit of God who uses the sword, which is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, has cut them. All their preconceived notions, all their mental abstractions and arguments, cutting through the psyche. All the hardness of a stony heart of unbelief. So hard that they had just recently actually crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, taken him by wicked hands. Suddenly, the plowshare of conviction, that sharp cutting knife of the Holy Spirit of God breaks right through and splits it wide open. And they're left there going, what shall we do? The answer, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 3,000 people say, you get Pentecost right now? Eh? Wonderful works of God. Conviction of sin, righteousness, judgment. 3,000 people saved. We get excited when we see one saved. How about 3,000 baptisms? How about the next chapter? 5,000 saved. 5,000 baptisms. Absolutely magnificent. This is God at work. May we take comfort this morning and have clear understanding of the work, the person, and the work of the Holy Spirit of God as he's broken into our heart and he brought us the blessings of God's salvation. May he through us and through his own divine methods be bringing further to this country of ours ere it's too late the conviction of sin, righteousness and judgment to come. Let's pray. Father, we pray a blessing upon thy holy word this morning and a a better understanding on the part of us all so that our faith is stronger, deeply rooted in the scriptures of truth. And as we go into the week ahead, day by day, may we go in the light and in the full blessings that have come to us with the Holy Spirit within us, the presence of God realized by us, and the joy of the Lord being our comfort and our strength. Help us to live more effectively, more lives that are more for the glory of God, we pray. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost again be our great blessing and portion in the week ahead. In his precious name, amen.